Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. I don't know. Some people don't like the new year, but I love it because I'm just like, yes, this is perfect time. January 1st was on a Monday. Like, there's no better time than now to be making these changes, in my opinion. Erin Spencer wants to pay off her credit card debt this year and save $2,000. It's her New Year's resolution. Now, she just needs a plan. Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. So, I only get to say, like, one financial bromide a year, and we're using it early. The best time to start something was yesterday. The second best time is today. So if your financial house needs tidying, we have tips. Also today... Canadian men's clothing icon Harry Rosen passed away over the holidays. In his time, he saw the arrival of designer suits, the rise of casual Fridays, working from home and athleisure. But what if he were starting today? Could a young Harry Rosen become a luxury retailer in our jeans and t-shirt world? Up first, remember the before times, before inflation? When you could grocery shop without thinking, that costs how much now? Just think how nice it would be if you could turn back the clock on your grocery bill. When you're at the grocery store, sometimes you just have to forget how much those apples used to cost. Or you won't buy anything. Sometimes it is shocking walking around the grocery store. It's like window shopping. Hey, hello, $3 avocado. Am I going to buy you or am I going to not? Am I going to walk away? It's like that with the avocados, with the clamshells of blueberries. Berry prices. Shocking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, Danielle Nerman, you also say there's a way that people maybe can beat those prices. Three words. Independent grocery stores. They're smaller, mostly sell fruits and vegetables, And they're not fancy. A lot of the produce comes in big bags or cases stacked on pallets. Ali Soufan's family runs Freestone Produce in Calgary. And it's there, Paul, that all my avocado toast dreams came true. $2 a bag for five avocado. Uh, Potato, 10 pound, $3.99. People talk about inflation, but... We've been selling 99-cent pound tomatoes for the last 12 years. 99 cents for a pound of tomatoes. And get this, I also spotted a five-pound bag of onions for 50 cents. 
You know, I've been to stores like this, Danielle. When I walk around, I'm like, how can they sell these vegetables for this price? They're like a life hack for fresh produce. And you can find independents in cities across the country. Toronto has the Corner Green Grocers. Then there's Fruticana in Edmonton and Kelowna. And then Kins all over Vancouver's Lower Mainland. And these are independent stores, which are just grocers that aren't owned by one of the big five, Loblaw, Sobeys, Metro, Costco, Walmart. Yeah, those five retailers control about 75% of Canada's grocery market. And what's left is a mix of regional chains, mid-sized grocers, and small ethnic supermarkets. Altogether, there's about 6,900 independents in Canada, and savvy shoppers know that they are worth checking out because it can really bring down your produce bill. So how do they do it? There's a lot of things independents do differently that let them undercut the big chains on price. Like, they typically only sell what's in season. You're not going to find cherries for sale in January at one of these stores, but you'll see California citrus and dino melons from Brazil. Tell me about a dino melon. So it kind of looks like a giant egg. It's like bigger than a honeydew, and it's white with green spots. But it it tastes like a melon. And because it's in season right now, Freestone's bringing it in by the pallet. Huh. And because there's a lot of supply, they can keep prices low? Yeah. If Ali Soufan can get dino melons at a great price, he can sell them at a great price. And, And he finds savings for customers in other ways, like when something goes wonky in the supply chain. So the big box stores have very strict rules on temperatures for what they can travel at. Say if pineapple's supposed to travel at 40 degrees, for example, and it comes in at 38, they'll, they'll reject it, right? And there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly fine, perfectly safe. So it'll kick back to a company and the company will call us and we work with them to figure out a deal where we could sell it and then they could recuperate some of their losses. Okay, I know he says this is perfectly fine, perfectly safe, but if the big grocers are saying, hey, we need the pineapples at 40 degrees Fahrenheit, then are they okay if they're not that? It's on a case-by-case basis. Like two degrees, he says, wouldn't make much of a difference. Like it wouldn't freeze the pineapples. And independent grocery stores, they do have to follow the same health and safety regulations as the big chains. So they're just kind of like more flexible. They're not as rigid. They're just kind of looser. They're like, okay, pineapple's cool. Yeah. And Ali C fan isn't going to turn away a truckload of perfectly good pineapples if they're at a great price because he can sell them. No problem. The people who come to his store buy in bulk. There are some communities out there that they live two, three families in a home, right? They're feeding probably up to seven, eight people. We have customers that you wouldn't think that would buy boxes that would come and be like, no, I need 25 pounds of tomatoes. I'm like, oh, what restaurant do you work for? No, it's for my house. So he's moving product. Yeah, and I've been to a couple of these independents over the last few weeks. It's an experience. They're very busy. The parking lots are full. You're circling around looking for a spot. Really long lineups at the till. But this is how they keep their prices low. Dave Harrison is an owner of another independent grocer. It's called H&W Produce. And he says they sell a lot every day, but only take a small cut of every sale. Like cherries this year were a bumper crop out of BC. Uh, they were just given away for cheap. And it, rather than just jack up my price and, you know, buying low volume, high margin, we were buying semi-loads. We were making 2 or $3 a case, but we were moving semi-loads every couple days. 
Yeah, the cherries I got, they were not giving them away for almost for free. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? It would be. But what he's doing, it's high volume, small profit margins, and that is what helps him keep prices low? Yeah, they're nimble, you know? They benefit from not being that big. Tamara Soma is the research director at the Food Systems Lab out of Simon Fraser University. She says when you just have one owner, you can pounce on a great deal. But when you're one of the big guys... The decision-making process is much more complicated. They have larger warehouses. They need to deal with a larger scale in terms of logistics. And so one one decision that seemingly you know should be easy to make or it should be simple to make is actually quite complicated because it will create kind of a ripple effect all throughout the supply chain. And also, you know, it, it can be even um, impacting, you know, the other stores. You know, we have multiple Loblaws in a, in a city, right, or multiple no-frills. Also, Paul, these big chains, they're dealing with a lot of moving parts. They, they don't just sell fruits and vegetables. And that's not the only thing they're dealing with. They have shareholders. Right. Like Loblaw, Metro, they're publicly traded. And that means they have to keep their quarterly profits up. Sure. And they have to be all things to all people. Pharmacies, butchers, they sell houseware, toys, shampoo. But if you go to one of Dave Harrison's stores... No, you can't get that stuff here, no. We're produce, 90% produce. We have a, a niche dairy, a niche jams, for examples, and ciders, and uh, like lo- like a lot of the local. We, we stay away from all the stuff that the Walmarts and Sobe sells. Yeah, but Walmart's also huge for a reason, because people can go there and they can get pretty much everything they need in one spot. It's convenient. They're everywhere. Places like Freestone and H&W Produce, they're, they're off the beaten track, not central. And that's deliberate because it keeps the rent down. Okay, that's good for the independent grocer. But what about the customers? Like, they have to go and really seek these spots out. They may not be on your way home from work. You might have to go on a day off. That's what Shay Duncombe does. She lives in Calgary. And a couple years ago, when food inflation was really starting to bite, she started buying her produce at a family-run grocery store. But she says you got to shop around. So I find that... You get the best deal when you shop to multiple stores. I know that sometimes it may be convenient to just go to the one store, especially if you may not have the vehicles. But honestly, I go out of my way to just plan it within my month. Even though it may take a little bit more time, it's definitely worth the effort. Look at these jalapeno prices. A whole bag for $2.70. It might take me like two months to get through a bag of jalapenos, so that might not be something I buy. But I saw key limes there, like a huge bag for three bucks. And I have to say, going to these independents, it was kind of fun. You know, you, you can see why they're so busy. And I can, I can totally see why people get hooked. Well, did you get hooked on the avocado prices? <laughs> yeah. I have been eating a lot of avocado toast. Could you be any more of a millennial? <laughs> Thanks, Danielle. You're welcome. Three? Three. Three clamshells for five bucks. This is a steal. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Habershrude. This is the year. We may have thought last year would be the year, but no. 2024, let's go. January is resolution time. New year, new, better us. And as producer Jen Keen finds, 
that can include our finances. No, really, it can. I have always been a goal setting person and the new year is like the best time for me. I'm like, I'm so hyped up. This year, Erin Spencer says she's going to get her finances in shape. She hopes to pay off her credit cards and... I also want to have $2,000 in savings by the end of the year. And I'm really focused on creating really good financial routines and habits. Erin lives in Halifax. She has an office job and makes 60000 bucks a year. On the downside, she also has some debts. Between car loan, owing on my taxes, um, what else do I have? Student loan, and I have just under $4,000 worth of credit card debt. All in, she owes 35000 bucks. So it's time to get serious. I'm saying no when I have to say no. Um, and I don't know how I'm going to do it, to be honest with you. I'm just going to figure it out some way, somehow. 30% of Canadians say they plan to cut back on their spending this year. That's according to a recent BMO survey. People say they're worried about the rising cost of living and what's coming next. Now, if you're one of those people, you could try doing what Alyssa Davies does. No spend January. I cut back and do not spend on dining out, shopping, impulse buys, takeout, all of those things that you could potentially cut from your budget in a crisis situation. And so this just kind of gives me a reset instead of over-purchasing and feeling stressed heading into a new year. Alyssa is a finance writer in Chestermere, Alberta. Every year after the holidays, she hits the pause button on impulse buying. It helps her see how and where she puts her money. And Alyssa says that that's the first step to getting your finances in shape. Time to look at the cold, hard reality of your credit card bills and take inventory. By that, I mean understanding your monthly expenses and your monthly income, but also knowing how many subscriptions you have, putting them all down on paper, asking yourself whether or not you need those things. Step two, create a sinking fund. It's not the same as an emergency fund or a savings account. A sinking fund is money you put aside for an expense you know is coming up. So for instance, I start saving for Christmas in January. I put $20 away every single week. And by December, I have enough saved for all of my gifts. And that goes in a separate high interest savings account and it saves me so much stress. The last thing Alyssa says is to start creating better financial habits right now. Don't have a retirement fund? Set one up. Arrange for automatic payments to go into a savings account. And she says the amount isn't important. If $20 is too much, that's okay. You can break it up into smaller increments. You can do less. You could put a dollar a month into a sinking fund. It doesn't really matter what the amount is. What matters is that you are paying attention to your finances, period. Erin Spencer is paying attention, and that is helping her sleep at night. I just feel like if I don't make a change, I'm just going to be miserable, you know? But when you're taking action, I feel like you can't be too stressed about it because you're doing everything that you can. For the cost of living, I'm Jennifer Keene.
Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. On your radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrud. Harry Rosen opened his first store in 1954. He took out a $500 loan, found a tiny space in Cabbage Town in Toronto, and started fitting men for suits. From there, the humble haberdasher became a Canadian retail icon. Harry Rosen passed away over the holidays. He leaves a world of fashion where hoodies at the office are no big deal. And wearing a shirt with a collar is an event if you work from home. We're less fancy than we used to be. So where does this leave fancy retailers? Bernadette Mora is the editor-in-chief of Fashion Magazine. She also spent decades covering the industry for the Toronto Star. Hello. Hey, Paul. Nice to talk to you. Well, thanks for joining us. So, Bernadette. Did you meet Harry Rosen? What was he like? Oh, he was such a gentleman. Yes, I interviewed him numerous times over many years. And he was um, a very kind and and distinguished yet unassuming kind of a, a man, a, a true gentleman in the true sense of the word. But also fashion tends, especially fashion retail tends to attract a lot of bombastic characters who have over-the-top personalities. And that wasn't Harry. Harry had a much quieter way about him. But I think that he was just um, uh, someone who was, had a huge talent. That quietness hid a really clever and quiet gift for um, selling men suits. Well, then what about Harry as a salesperson? Because he he must have been able to sell. Yes, but I don't think he sold in the, in the, in the hard sell way. Harry was a soft sell guy. And he did that by getting inside the head of his customers. He understood that men do not like to shop. Most men, we shouldn't generalize. There are men that like to shop, but most men, especially businessmen, especially businessmen in the world of the 50s and the 60s, which was a very conformist time when men had to dress a certain way, the, the standards of dress were very, very rigid, and you were expected to conform if you were going to succeed in the business world. So men would come to him um, pretty much unwillingly, out of duty, just feeling like they needed some needed to look good for, for work. And he would help them to understand that fit and quality of the cloth and style could be tools that they could use to help them succeed in business. So they began to see shopping as not, not a a um, chore, but something that they could do to help themselves get ahead. If you think back to that time, or you think about Harry in that time, did he do anything to to separate himself from the pack of tailors uh, selling suits? 
Well, eventually, yes. Er, he was an early adopter of ready to wear and the new designers that were coming up in Europe. So these are names. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine Giorgio Armani being a new young designer, but there was a time when he was. And Harry was an early, um, adopter. He was very excited. So he brought men's ready to wear to Canada in, in a very big way. And he convinced men that they could spend even more on a suit, a ready made suit than a tailor made suit. And this is part of the allure of the designer. So where there we pay more for designer things because they haven't added cachet. I don't know if you remember the film American Gigolo when that came out with Richard Gere and it was um, very much about the Armani, the soft-shouldered Armani suit that Richard Gere wore in that film. And I mean, this just took menswear by storm and everybody wanted that Armani suit. So that's when designer fashion really started to influence menswear. And Harry was very much at the forefront of that in Canada. Well, I remember that because uh, uh, Richard Gere, he lays out that suit on the bed and he's Richard Gere. But that scene, I mean, he was sexy as hell in that scene. And that's why men wanted the suit. They thought they would, you know, look, be as sexy as Richard Gere. Um, you know, good luck with that. But anyway, that's that sex sells, even in menswear. But if I think about, you know, power suits, whether it was that Armani suit or a different one, I mean, I also think of like Richard Gere and Pretty Woman. Or I think about Michael Douglas in Wall Street. I think about 80s corporate raiders. What happened to that kind of, of dress for success? Yes, that was the very much uh, dress for success. And not only in menswear, but in women's wear. And the power suit, I mean, if you go back to look at fashion editorials at the time, um, it was very much about the power suit, both in menswear, but especially in women's wear, because this was a time when women we're starting to come into the workforce. And actually, Harry dabbled in women's wear. He did, um, I think it might have been 80s or 90s that he uh, tried to um, open up part of his business to, to women. And it didn't quite take. But um, yes, that was very much the era of the power suit and, and perhaps the last era of the power suit that we will ever see. Why is that? I know in the 90s, we got casual Fridays. What did that do to how we dress and especially how we dress at work? Well, it was a big psychological shift that you could come into work and wear like chinos and a t-shirt or, or uh, and a sport jacket even in those early days. And then things just got more and more and more casual until you have the new generation today that are if they wear a, sh a collared shirt and trousers to the office, that's dressing up. So if we're in a more casual world, and then on top of that, we also have the internet, which can teach us how to dress, do we really need someone to hold our hand? Like, is there a place for a Harry Rosen today? Yes, I think that even though we are seeing, obviously, Harry Rosen's business uh, evolving with the times and with these new contemporary brands, that there still is some, um, there still is, is, is going to be 
whether it is Harry or whether it is other names that pop up and businesses that pop up, that there are going to be people who feel that they need the guidance, that they want um, to play it safe. And, but is that, um, is that, that aspect of dress changing and evolving? Absolutely. If you step back and look at the bigger picture, how things have changed over the last 50, 60, 70 years, you can see the pattern of how things are evolving. So how are people going to dress in another 10 or 20 years? I could not even tell you at this point. Well, you couldn't, but but my last question for you, for you Bernadette, finally here is, is what about the suit? Like, could the suit make a comeback? I think, I, I don't think we will ever go back to the days of the power suit where that was the expected and dominant way of dress for the masses. I think that the suit will be a tool that people use as a sign of respect. For example, going to a funeral, going to a wedding, although people dress many, you know, all kinds of ways now to go to weddings, depending on what the wedding is like. But in terms of men going back to wearing suits to work, as a general rule, I do not see it. Absolutely not. All right. Well, Bernadette Mora, thank you. You're welcome. Bernadette Mora is the editor-in-chief of Fashion Magazine. Do you miss the days when suits ruled the office world? Or are you casual and comfortable? Let's get sartorial. Our number is 1-866-550-COST. That's 1-866-550-2678. Or email costofliving at cbc.ca. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Bonanet-Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Habershreed. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.